0: Hello, I'm Anna-Marie Slott, Global ESG and Sustainability Partner here at Ashurst. Thank you for joining me for another one of our 30 for Net Zero 030 podcasts, where I've been speaking with champions across the globe about real actions to take now to achieve 2030 goals. Today, I'm super excited to be joined by Michael Paulin, founder and director of Exploration Architecture, a company that focuses on high-performance buildings and solutions for the circular economy. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining us today, Um, and I really enjoyed your TED Talk um, that's out there for anyone who wants to watch a fascinating TED Talk. Maybe you could start off with just a little bit of background around yourself, you know, how you came to give your talk, maybe, and, and, and the work that you're doing
1: sure well thanks very much for involving me and thanks for that introduction so uh, as you said i'm an architect i'm also a consultant and increasingly advising organizations on how to transform from sustainable to regenerative and maybe we can come on to uh, discussing the, the difference between those i also co-founded something called architects declare a climate and biodiversity emergency which grew into built environment declares, so including a wide range of disciplines. And then I uh, wrote a co-authored book with Sarah Ichioka that came out at the end of last year. That's called Flourish Design Paradigms for Our Planetary Emergency. And uh, the TED talk I gave and and really a a lot of my focus of interest is on biologically inspired design approaches. And um, the reason I think those are so important is because I feel it's becoming more and more clear now that, that the challenge for humanity really is to try and integrate everything we do into the broader web of life. And given that, that urgent challenge, there's a huge amount that we can learn from the way that the natural world works at a functional and systemic level.
0: So you've been a little busy in the, you know, the kind of the last, uh, <laughs> last few months, I guess fascinating that you've got all these different aspects going and you know I think um, most people realize what a crucial and gigantic aspect built environment is to the kind of the overall um topic of, of of how we live on this planet um have you you know you've obviously been very active for a very long time have you been seeing any shift really in the kind of last 18 to 24 months about you know how the rest of the world is engaging on this
1: I have, and in various of your episodes, you've commented on on the really substantial shift towards zero carbon, and that's great. The other really important shift that that I've seen is the increasing use of the term regenerative. And I I think for those people who've been in the field of sustainability for a long time, uh, there's been a sort of growing feeling that conventional approaches to sustainability have not got us where we need to be. And and that really became clear to me with the October 2018 IPCC report. And for me, there there are three distinct differences between sustainable and regenerative. So firstly, sustainability has largely been about mitigating negatives. And and the implication is that the best we can hope to achieve is to uh, be 100% less bad. And actually, we need to go beyond that into the realms of, of uh, having a net positive impact. The other thing is that sustainability has tended to be rather mechanistic. And, and actually, we need a much more systemic approach. And, and then thirdly, sustainability tended to just be about humans. And uh, we we actually need to acknowledge that, that we are completely dependent on ecosystems for our uh, well-being and long-term sustainability uh, you know as a species.
0: No actually, uh, fair, fair points. and I think really interesting is that that acknowledgement that you're seeing and now all these task forces on the you know kind of a, with a wider group of people talking about biodiversity, talking about the role of nature, you know, I think historically that was always kind of something that people thought was nice. Um, you know it's nice that we take a walk in the woods sometimes. Um, You know, right, (laughs) and and not really realizing actually, you you know, we we need the woods.
1: Yeah, I I agree. Um, You know, there there was a time when um, biodiversity was really just regarded as kind of trying to conserve one or two iconic species, and then that broadened into trying to conserve uh, really valuable habitats. And I think the pandemic has actually shifted our thinking quite substantially, and, and it's made us realize. How interconnected we are—not just with humans, but it, you know—did show that we're, you know, we're only safe when we're all safe, and and also, I think it's encouraged us to think much more carefully about our relationship with the rest of the living world. Because if we keep treating nature as something to be plundered for resources, we're going to experience more frequent and potentially more serious pandemics. Um, and I mean, I I, I hope that—and uh, this is something that my co-author Sarah and I wrote in our book—I I hope that in time. Uh, the pandemic will be seen as a quite significant turning point where we we realized that it was the end of what, what we call human exceptionalism you know the idea that somehow we can exist outside the laws of, of physics and biology which is always nonsense but you know we've we've struggled to accept that for quite a long time
0: yeah it's this kind of dominion over idea right? That, that, that was really kind of running the show for a long time. And I think that's falling apart in lots of different ways and lots, you know, through lots of different um, lenses when you look at <clears throat> things that are going on throughout society. Um, and really interesting, you know, is, is that, you know, you and I were talking earlier about, you know, the rights of nature and how that is now becoming uh, something that people are talking about. And it is kind of this much more Big picture, look at the whole system, and understand that you know all of these aspects need to be recognized. Um, are you seeing people like engaging with you on, on those kinds of conversations, or how, how's that?
1: They are, but I think we've still got a long way to go. So you know, the the um, the progress on zero carbon is great, but sometimes I I worry that that could um, occlude other really essential aspects. So, you know, for instance, just, just to take one example, there's really very little discussion at the moment about the effects of toxins on the environment. And um, if you look at what's happened to um, sperm counts in, in Western males, it's, it's dropped by something like 60% in, in the last 50 years. And if it carries on, it, so far it looks like a linear trend. And if it carries on as it is, we will be sterile as a species long before we get to zero carbon. And yet, no one's talking about it. Well, hardly anyone. And um, you know, a lot of that comes down to the way we make things. So you're probably familiar with the book Cradle to Cradle: Rethinking the Way We Make Things. And what really came across in, in that book, uh, which was written by a chemist and an architect, uh, what came across to me was that you know uh, the way we the way we go about making things really represents sloppy chemistry because we release all sorts of things into the environment that. Um, uh, we shouldn't do, uh, and and we often use the wrong materials, and uh, we we really need an, an urgent rethink on that. And and similarly in buildings, it's it's not often discussed, but in uh, in fires, far more people die from inhaling toxic fumes than from the direct effect of of um, flames. And I think what we need to do is completely design out toxins so that includes designing out most fire retardants and that's going to lead to much, much greater use of sprinklers in buildings, but I think that would be a a much safer approach.
0: Interesting yeah I think it is that point, I think, hopefully we're getting to a point where people are thinking okay not just what can I do, how can I, how can I tweak what I'm doing now to get to kind of a net zero or net negative. But how do I, if I were starting today and I step back and I looked at the whole system fresh, how would I deliver what I'm trying to deliver through what I'm what I'm doing?
1: Yeah, exactly. And and those two words you use, the whole system, those, those are crucial because what we really do need is is better integrated thinking.
0: And so maybe Michael, if you could give some examples of kind of what that looks like in, in real practice.
1: Yeah, sure. So I I can give you an example at a sort of national level and then a more uh, construction or built environment specific one. So we're in a particularly difficult situation at the moment with the Ukraine war and so on. And in 2021, the UK spent £4 billion on, on Russian oil and is currently planning to spend £27 billion on expanding the road network. So let's look at those figures and think about well maybe there's a a, a better integrated way of approaching this so for 3 billion pounds a year we could afford to make every bus fare in the uk free which would mean we would massively uh, reduce congestion, uh, we'd reduce the cost of living crisis, and we wouldn't need to spend that 27 billion pounds on expanding the road network. We could instead spend that 27 billion pounds on upgrading the buildings in the UK, the draftiest and and amongst the coldest in Europe. Uh, We could start with those most suffering from from fuel poverty. Um, So taken in a more integrated way, we could actually tackle uh, climate change, uh, the cost of living crisis, congestion, transport, um, fuel poverty, as well as cutting off four billion uh, that was, was going to Vladimir Putin. Uh, that That's the benefit of integrated approaches. And to take a more specific one uh, from the built environment, there's a lot of talk now about uh, the idea of the 15-minute city and the mayor of Paris, Anne Hidalgo, has been pushing this. So the idea with a 15 minute city is that if you plan or or, or refurbish a bit of city so that people can access everything they need in terms of weekly amenities within a 15 minute walk or cycle, then you massively reduce the need for for, um, uh, private cars. You can release more urban space for for, uh, green spaces. And and it can actually save a lot of money. Uh, so that that really is transformative in terms of people's well-being, their, their social I- interactions. Um, and um, it, it it would it would create a much better quality of life with lower resource use and lower overall cost. Yeah, no,
0: and and, and you would think, you know, that that lower overall cost is such a such a win. For, for so many people um, within the structure,
1: right? Well, it, yeah, you would, <laughs> but people still seem to struggle with the idea of integrated thinking. Yeah. I mean, another example is, is hospital design, but hospitals are often built to the lowest uh, capital cost. And that's a disaster because you know it, it then costs more to treat people. And, and if you look at an example, um, There was a fantastic study of a hospital in the U.S. where there was one particular ward and everyone was recovering from the same operation. Half the beds had a view to a blank brick wall on the other side of the street. The other half of the beds had a view of a a green space. The people with the view of nature recovered 8% more quickly and with half the amount of pain relieving drugs of the people with the, the view of the blank brick wall. And imagine the economic benefits of treating everyone in hospital 8% more quickly with 50% less drugs yeah that you know wow. that should have that should have become standard practice for hospital design
0: yeah
1: and that that's what we need to get to a a, a more integrated and holistic and a longer term view on on delivering the maximum value for the minimum long term cost not not the minimum short term cost
0: yeah yeah yeah. And phrased in that way, you know, I mean, who, who, who would get pushback from high? I'd like to save 8% on our costs today. Can we implement it? Mm. Right. And energy efficiency. I think, you, you know, you mentioned, you know, the draftiness of, of the, the English building stock. I mean, energy efficiency alone is, is huge, huge savings, you know, not in the, in the immediate, you know, month that it's costing you to put in everything in, but when you look in the right time frame. That's a Absolutely, and,
1: and that can be done so much more quickly than building a new nuclear power station.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, so on that, let's move to action. What What about an action? Where Where do you think the you know who needs to really focus in on the in the next year or two? Because obviously, everything we do now is, is cumulative to to what we get back from it in the future. Mm. Um, what do you
1: think? I think we need a richer debate about how change happens uh, uh, and I think it's uh, kind of naive to think that if we if we just keep going towards zero carbon we'll get there because uh, we need much more than that. Mm. Um, and I also think we need a, a debate about the, the the role of technology. So you know, there are plenty of people at the moment who would like to think or like us to think that technology has all, all the answers and it does have some of the answers but the outcome of a particular technology depends a lot on the mindset behind it. So if we take an example like 3D printing, based on the current economic system, 3D printing could well increase resource consumption and see us drowning in a ton of consumerist crap. However, if if 3D printing was driven by a regenerative mindset it could be really transformative because it, it would allow us to use the right raw materials assembled in a way that allows near perfect circular stewardship and it would allow us to get closer to the remarkable efficiency of biological structures quite possibly achieving factor 10 or even factor 100 savings in resource use and it's that um, mindset level that I think we really need uh, the the movement on. And and that's what Sarah and I wrote about in our book. Each chapter describes a really fundamental shift that we need to bring about if we're to make this this, um, overall shift from a sustainable mindset to a regenerative one. Hmm. And and most of what we've been doing in sustainability is still relevant, but we need to transcend and include that with a, a broader and more systemic set of perspectives.
0: No, definitely. And, and so so I'm going to ask you the question of, you know, what have you been up to personally in, in terms of your own commitments? I, I think in some ways maybe writing a book and, and being super active uh, on the business front is, is very helpful to it. But just a, anything else um, that you have in your back pocket?
1: <laughs> sure. Well, I, I, I'll give you t- two Things I'm going to be working on over the next um, twelve months. One is I'm working on a scheme with a small developer, um, and, and that is aiming to be planet positive, so sequestering more carbon than it, it releases, uh, creating more uh, habitats for biodiversity than currently exist, and really trying to be net positive uh, uh, across the, the board. And then the other thing is that I'm going to be uh, continuing the, the work that I've been involved with in architects declare and built environment declares trying to build a broad coalition of declare organizations and local authorities so that we can bring about a tipping point because what has been very frustrating for people like yourself and and me working in this area for a long time is that we've actually had all the solutions we need for a long time the 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 problem really is with the uh, persistent current economic system which is which is really deeply flawed and i'm not calling for an end to capitalism. I'm I'm calling for a a form of economics that can flourish within planetary limits. I'm thinking Mm. particularly of examples like uh, Kate Rayworth's Donut Economics. And in um, local authorities, uh, I I read recently that 93% of the UK population is now living in a local authority that has declared a climate emergency. And we've had a whole plethora of other organizations declaring a climate emergency. And I'm pretty sure that a lot of them will have arrived at at similar conclusions, which is there's there's only so much we can do to get our own houses in order as sectors or organizations or whatever. What we really need is is higher level systems change. We need to redirect the purpose of, of the economy. So it's not just about endless growth, but it is. Um, I, I believe, that, and Sarah and I wrote about this in our uh, chapter um, on growth, uh, a much more suitable uh, purpose for the economy would be the maximization of planetary health.
0: Mm.
1: And as you may know, planetary health is distinct from global health in that it, it acknowledges that, that our health as humans is inseparable from the health of the broader systems on which we depend.
0: Mm. Yeah. So in 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 the last moments here, it, you know, one takeaway for our listeners who who are uh, who've joined us today, what 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 should they go away from this podcast thinking as they as they head back into their into their working day?
1: Sure, I'd like to encourage your listeners to think about how they can maximize their agency, because we have had a problem, particularly in the built environment, of of professionals minimizing their agency, kind of thinking, oh, well, you know, there's a, I'm only an architect, there's only so much I can do unless I have a really ambitious client. And sometimes big client organizations say, well, you know, we're beholden to our shareholders, so there's not much we can do. And the problem with that is that it's 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 kind of contagious. It, when we minimize our own agency, we uh, encourage others to, to minimize theirs. But the good thing is that if we flip that, I'm absolutely convinced that that contagious effect, positively contagious effects uh, could could spread. And um, it's also useful, I think, to, to consider where you can be most effective. So there's someone called Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. She's a biologist, a policy expert, and a podcast host. And she encourages people to think in terms of a Venn diagram, uh, three circles. What are you good at? What do you enjoy? And what is the work that needs to be done? And if you can find that sweet spot, then that's likely to be to be where you can be most effective. And once you've done that, I think it's worth taking note of Naomi Klein's advice, you know, where she's when she's asked, what can I do as an individual? Her response is stop thinking of yourself as an individual, because you can achieve so much more if you collaborate with others. You know, if you're in a company look to how you can transform your company. If you're senior in a company, look to how you can transform your institution. If you're the head of an institution, look to how you can team up with other institutions to bring about the kind of necessary systems change we need. And finally, I'd really encourage people to try to find unifying ways of communicating and collaborating. I find the constant sort of culture wars and, and division that some populists engage in really very tiresome and unhelpful. And, and we've got to get over that. We, we've all got to get on, on board with a really urgent situation.
0: Excellent advice. Take, take, take what you're good at. Think about how uh, how that matters and, and, and get moving. So thanks so much, Michael. I really appreciate you uh, joining us today. And for those of you looking for something to read over the weekend, uh, Why don't you pick up Flourish, Design Paradigms for Our Planetary Emergency by Sarah Ichioka and Michael Pollan.
1: Thank you.